religious, political, and legal council in Jerusalem during New Testament times. Now, it's a combination of two Greek words, sin, meaning together, and hedra, meaning seat. So, I guess it's to have a seat together. Now, in Greek literature, Sanhedrin was often a council of representatives from various constituencies. The rabbis legitimized the Sanhedrin by tracing it back to Moses and his 70 elders found in Deuteronomy 27. However, apart from this verse, there really wasn't anything like the Sanhedrin instituted at that time. The real origin of the Sanhedrin comes from the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, when they rebuild Jerusalem after the exile. The community was headed by the priestly nobility, which formed an aristocratic council. Now, when the Greeks conquered Israel, these Hellenistic kings gave some freedom to the Jews, so this council grew in power. But right before Herod was king in 40 BC, he actually stood on trial by the Sanhedrin. But by 37 BC, he became king and he retaliated by killing everyone in the Sanhedrin and replaced them with priests who had no political power. But whenever Rome established a, a procurator to be in charge in 6 AD, the Sanhedrin was reestablished as the Supreme Court of Justice. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 people, and the key figures were, number one, the chief priest, who were the former high priest and Sadducees. The second tier were the scribes, and the third tier were elders, who were priests and Pharisees. So, there you go, a little bit about the Sanhedrin, and that's enough today for a historical minute. Let us pray. God, we love you so much, and we just pray that you be with us tonight. It's sort of a crazy time in our country again. Not only do we have the coronavirus going on, but now we have just all these groups that are uh, looting and, and, and causing disruption in our country and just making us, I guess, on top of everything else, uh, a little less safe. So we pray, Lord, that, the, I don't know, clear thinking and, and calm heads would prevail, that the Father would illustrate what needs to be illustrated, but then that we get yeah, kind of being normal again and treating each other with respect again and each other's property with respect again. And Father, as you, you be with us tonight as we go through uh, in the book of Acts, we pray that you continue to give us wisdom, that you continue to remind us that you got us, and that you continue to share with us just how much you love us. And that's our prayer tonight. We pray that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So we're going to pick up in, in verse 11 of chapter 3 today. Uh, what just happened, if you're kind of, well, we're all new back, and, and aren't you glad you're here? I, I love music live, way better than I do it on the TV. I, I love that you guys are here. I know it's like, kind of like a small Bible study right now, but that's on purpose as we figure out the protocols, but I love that you're here. Mike and James are working on figuring out how to do this live next week, so it should all be good. They've got it, I mean, and you know those guys, it's just going to be good, so it'll be a lot of fun. I, I don't like the mask, though. I'm almost passing out every time I sing, but, but other than that, I'm good. Um, we're picking up again in Acts, which, if you're new to this story, Peter was walking along the temple, and there was a guy that was sitting outside the temple, um, and it was just a place where, where, I guess he was positioned on a daily basis where he would beg for help. He was a paraplegic. He hadn't been walking in years, and, and, and maybe ever, and so he was always had people get up early in the morning, take him to this spot, and plop him down so that he could help contribute to the family. Well, he was out there again, and he was asking for people to help him, and you know how that is today. Some people who don't want to help him just kind of go like this and pretend he's not there, but, but this was a culture, again, a very pietistic culture where people just, you know, had on their heart to help people a little bit more, and so I'm sure periodically or often enough, people would help him as they went in to contribute to the sanctuary, to worship God. It was probably a pretty strategic spot. So he asked Peter as he's walking in, hey, can, 
can you, can you help a guy out? And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And, and at that, I don't know if he had heard about Jesus. I don't know if he was a believer in Jesus. I don't know what the background. But this guy took those words of Peter and he stood up. For the first time in years, for the first time ever, he got up and walked. And then he started jumping and running. Just, I mean, he, he just, and what's remarkable about that is his muscles didn't have to go through physical therapy for like five years, right? I mean, he never used them before. He just got up and his muscles were working right. It was a complete healing in every way. When God, when God does stuff, he does it so completely. And it blew the people away. They had seen somebody do this kind of stuff before. I mean, within the year, it was Jesus. Jesus had gone all over Israel and he was healing people. He brought sight to blind people. He rose people from the dead. I mean, this guy was crazy. He did all sorts of things and he knew the word of God and he taught like nobody else had ever taught. But the leaders were convinced he was a phony. And they knew they turned him over to the Romans to be killed. So they were conflicted. They, they knew this was an amazing teacher, an amazing man of God, and yet they knew that their leaders, for whatever reason, thought he was no good and Here's a guy now preaching in the name of Jesus and healing people to such an extent that he's getting up and he's moving. And again, it caught people's attention. And so as it did, Peter said, well, time for my second sermon. My first sermon brought 3,000 people to Christ. So he starts again and he starts sharing some things. And I love the way he does this one because he personalizes it in a very specific way toward his audience. Again in verse 11, it says, When he clung to Peter and John, this was the person that had been healed, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare as though by our own power or piety we have made this guy walk? God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus now, it's interesting, he, he's going to go into this next section. He goes, just in case you miss this, I want to tell you why this is so amazing and why this is so important. You know, you go through, well, I'm going to make fun of something I probably should make fun of right now, but you, you know that whole experience woke, right? And there's woke politically, but, but there's something that, I'll just use woke in a different way. Woke spiritually, when you truly get what it's about. And I think that's just as important in our culture today as it was back when Peter was giving this sermon. I think so often we go through life and then we think we're good, right? Does God really care about the sin stuff? Like my buddy says, does he really care about the obedience stuff? I mean, does it really matter to him? Does he really care about me going to church all the time or reading the Bible or tithing or all that stuff? Does he really care? And the answer is like, yes, 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 and yes. God still cares about all that stuff because he wants to keep us safe, because he wants us to know him, because he wants that relationship with him, because he wants other people to know about him, because he wants us in heaven. He cares about all that stuff. So Peter's going to kind of share this to kind of wake up people, okay? And he uses the word you a lot. And I think we could probably draw that also to us. So I'll continue. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Contemporized it a little bit. Couldn't he be writing to us? You know, whom you 
delivered over to the different things that you thought were more important than God, to the ways that you thought were better than God's ways. There's all sorts of ways that we kind of put God in the rearview mirror and said, we're going to do it our way, or we're going to do what we think is best. Whom we denied, right, his, his truth, his, his word to us, that we denied so that we could pursue different ends, or that we shut our ears so that we wouldn't have to hear what God has to say. I mean, not you guys, always talking about the other services, right? But he personalizes this because I think in every one of our lives, there's been seasons, right, where, I don't know, because of this or that, we wanted to distance ourselves from hearing the truth about God, hearing about how much he cares, hearing about his way, whom you killed as the author of life. How many times have we tried to silence the Holy Spirit when he calls out to us, when he makes us feel guilty, when he reminds us that there's a better way, when he reminds us that we should be more about others and more about him than about ourselves? Peter tries to personalize this in a way, and again, remember this group? They had watched Jesus die. They'd seen his miracles. They had heard his teachings. These were the people in Jerusalem. Many of them probably there that day because they were in the temple were part of the group that harangued him when he was crucified. Others were just good worshipers and they came there and they thought that maybe he was the Messiah. Maybe they were part of the Palm Sunday group that kind of ushered him in as the Messiah, the King of Kings, the one they thought was going to save them. But either way, they were complicit when Jesus died. They didn't go and rush to Jesus' aid. If anything, they were probably more like, well, I don't know. I'll just let it kind of play out and we'll see what happens. I don't want to get involved. You can see that playing out in our culture today. In fact, one of the reasons I know you could see that play out in our culture today is because the last election saw the greatest number of Christians vote in the history of our country, 30-something percent. It's like we don't even want to vote. Like we don't even want to have a say in the direction of our country. And so we just abdicate that gift that our country gives us to have a say, to put certain people in office and to get rid of others, right? He gives us this opportunity. He gives us this role. And we're like, we just don't want to be involved. Whatever the reason, they watched Jesus die. And he goes on to say, and we are witnesses to these things. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of y'all. So he's basically saying, you know what all went down. You know how you mistreated him. You know how you denied him. You know how you killed the author of life. You've heard about the resurrection stories. Maybe you've seen him or you know you have somebody in your life that's seen him and they couldn't believe it, but there he was. Jesus had risen from the day from the dead, the apostles were witnesses to it, and so were so many of the people that were there. They could not deny that truth. They could not deny that this guy was lame for all his life, and all of a sudden now was walking. They couldn't deny any of it, and they knew that it was in the name of Jesus. And I love Peter. This was his chance for glory. He could have gobbled it all for himself. Look at me. Look what I did. But he didn't do any of that. He pointed again to Jesus because it was about Jesus and not about him. I wish ministers in our country, like most of them do, but just that they would all make it about the glory of God instead of the glory of self. I think that would be better for the church. I think that would be better for people's relationships. That it's not the pastor who all of a sudden said this amazing thing, but it was God working through the pastor that day that touched your heart and wants you to hear something. And so Peter gives this, this crushing blow. He says, you killed the Almighty God. You killed the Messiah, the one who came to save you. You killed, you killed the one that you knew was the author of life. And then he goes on to verse 17 to give the gospel. 
But one other thing, when, in 14 he says, but you denied, right? But you denied the holy and righteous one. I want you to understand as Peter's given this, this sermon, he's preaching to himself too, isn't he? Remember what he did? Night Jesus was betrayed, he denied him three times. And, and he out of all people knew he was the holy and righteous one. But to save his skin, to not be caught, to not kind of be thumped in with Jesus, he, he denied his Lord three times. He says, I'm just as complicit as you guys. I'm just as broken. I'm just as guilty. I'm just as messed up as you guys. And so he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then he says, repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You get his message again? Again, what is John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What was Jesus' message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? What was Peter's first two messages? Repent. You killed the Holy One of God. Repent. He sent him to save you, and now he can because of his resurrection. Repent. Now, first four sermons, right? First three guys, preachers of the gospel. What's their common thing? Repent. Does God still care about this sin stuff? Yeah, he cares if you follow. Why? Because he's a loving dad. It would be insane if he didn't care what you did. And he asks you to follow him because he knows it's the safest, the best, the most blessed way forward. He just knows. He knows how you're wired. He created you. He knows how you work. He knows what you need. So he says, follow me. This is the safest way forward. And it honors me when you listen to me, just like we love it when our kids listen to us, when we're proud of our kids, when they're obedient to us, when they show understanding of why we've asked them to do what they've done, we get even more proud. God says, I love you guys so much. And, and so, if we could back up again, what is he saying? He's saying, if you believe in me, if you repent and come to Jesus, this one who just rose this guy, right, from, from being a paraplegic to walking around jumping, the one that rose Jesus from the dead, if you trust in Jesus, you're going to get life. You're going to get eternity with me. You're going to get forgiveness. You're going to get healthy. All these amazing blessings come from that. But if you stay in your sin, you live with the reality that you've just killed the author of life. I think that's a hard teaching today. I, I, I think we, in our world today, we, we do so much of this, I don't know, I'm okay, you're okay, that there's no real right or no real wrong. There's just kind of this, I don't know, if I feel it, therefore it must be true. But that's not the way God works. God says this is true and this is not true. I tell you in my word, which one? And think about the fact that we sit as judged in the hands of an angry God without Jesus. Why is God angry? Well, number one, we're not following him. Number two, he sent his own son to die for us, right? And we, and we like bludgeoned him when he was here so that through his death we could know life. Just think about if that were you. You got the people didn't get it. You got the people were lost, but you love them and you want them to be in heaven. And so for whatever reason, you're God and you can send your son and he can die and through his death, provide a way for people to you, to, to come to you. And, and here's the response of most of the people in the world. Yeah, I'm good. I, I mean, I, I see that you, you provided a way for me to be in heaven. I, I see it's not that hard. I just have to believe in my son and follow you, but 
I don't know, I, I've got better things to do. I've got more important things to do. I, I feel like I'm more important than you. We don't have so much idolatry today as, um, in the sense that we worship idols, but you know, we do worship self. Live in the me society. We do worship money and dollars for sure. We, we sometimes worship other people and do whatever they say. But Jesus and John the Baptist and Peter just say, but repent of that and be saved. That's how easy it is. It's, you know, I love the imagery of baptism sometimes. It's, it's like you're drowning your old self of sin and brokenness and, and, and things that you said and the things that you've done and, and all the stuff that you're embarrassed of and, and, and all the stuff that you know that you've rebelled against. And you just drown that stuff. And when he raises you to life, he raises you in the spirit. He raises you in that forgiveness. He raises you in that strength. You become like a new person. And he gives you the strength to overcome the past. He gives you a strength to, to kind of deal with the past in ways that are more helpful, right? He, he helps you with the strength to feel that peace and that strength and that hope of knowing that God's got you every step of the way as you go through life. You are raised a new person, and that's what God wants for us. And so Peter just kind of hones in on that as he continues this. Uh, I guess I'll make a couple more points. Um, in verse 21, it's, or verse 20 and 21, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So that when we're forgiven, what do we know? Peace. And when we trust, what do we know? Peace and hope and joy. See, the more and more you trust the words that God has shared with us, the more and more you experience all those things in life. You know, I talked on, on kind of the fear that's associated with our finances this morning. And you know how you experience peace in your finances? You trust that God's got you. You know how my daughter experiences peace with her nightmares? She runs into our room, right? And I asked her the other night, I said, why do you, you know, or what do, why do you come into our room? Or like, why, what do you experience when you come into our room? When you're scared like that, because she comes in and she goes to sleep. And she says, when I come to your room, I just figure you're there, so everything's going to be okay. She experiences a peace in the magical fortress of our room, right? But that should be our experience every time we come to God. It's where we're reminded that he's got us, that he loves us, that we're his. It's where we're reminded that he's working all things for our good constantly. So we're reminded that we're his and that we're loved by him, that he sees and he knows and he's still working that good out in our lives. And with that hope and with that confidence, it allows us to live life differently than freaking out about everything that we experience in this life. <laughs> Somebody was joking. He says, yeah, now it's not just the coronavirus, it's the killer hornets. And now it's the, all these groups that are going and, and lighting things on fire and stuff like that as if we didn't have enough to worry about. Uh, Mike was going to create a T-shirt that says, uh, no God, N-K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O-W. And then on the back, no God, N-O, no peace, right? Peace comes from trust. It comes from trusting the words of God, and that's, that's a powerful thing. And then he goes on as he continues. Um, he says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things uh, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so he's just saying, Jesus has got to go away for a little while. And when the time's right, he's going to come back, right? Second coming of Christ, to restore all things, to judge the living and the dead, to set up the new heaven and the new earth, and to kind of start over with this Garden of Eden thing, right? Not that it would be the Garden of Eden, but just this new heaven and new earth where there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more hurt. Can you imagine a world like that? It's going to be awesome. 
He's got stuff for us to do in that world, all sorts of things. It's going to be wonderful. And then in verse 22, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, who you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you to do. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. God's created all of mankind to love us, to be with us in eternity, forever and ever and ever. He loves to bestow his love upon us. That's the whole reason we're created, is so that we could be loved by God. Satan's kind of messed things up for a while, and so the ones ultimately that God receives are ones that he can live with and, and hang out with and love on for eternity, right? That's awesome. And he's invited all that are on this earth to believe in him and to, to be ushered into that kingdom forever. But again, Peter, again, law, gospel, law, gospel all the way through this is just saying, but if you don't listen to this Jesus, if you don't trust him, you're going to be lost. That's why we call him a savior. Not, you know, it's almost like he's a moral teacher today. Jesus shows us the right things to do, but it's more, no, he's our savior. He saved us from hell. That's a good thing. That's a powerful, we should rejoice at that. And so it says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent them to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, I, I don't want to harp on this a whole lot, but God does care about the stuff that we do. And he calls us to follow, not just to protect us, but because he's God. And all that believe in him, all that trust in him can be found. In verse chapter 4, he goes on and says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it probably would have been such a big deal if they'd just been preaching the resurrection because, you know, the Pharisees believed that, the Sadducees didn't. Paul actually used that as a way to get him in an argument later on. But he said, no, Jesus rose from the dead. And there, there were witnesses of this, and they were speaking of it as fact. And so, man, the Sadducees, they didn't like that at all. We just killed Jesus. We don't have to, who are these new guys? What are they doing? And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Partly because they owned their sin. Do we get that? It, um, people, one of the things that if you're forgiven little, you love little. If you're forgiven much, you love much. I don't know if you've ever blown it in life, like big time, and heard the words you're forgiven and the powerful experience that is, if they don't bring it back up again, right? If they, if they truly just kind of wrap you up in their arms and it's, it's a complete forgiveness. I mean, it's, 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 it's experienceable, it's tangible, they're not, there are no take-backs. You look at that person in gratefulness for the rest of your life, ultimately, because you're so amazed that they could just let it go. Because most people in your life don't do that. God does that so completely. You can't outsin his grace. There's nothing you could have done in your life that is so horrible that God can't wipe away and make you new. And so they heard this word in, in two sermons. Peter watched God bring 5,000 people to the church. Their hearts were already broken, and they saw in Jesus a way to receive that forgiveness and that life. 
And the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were on the high priestly family. In other words, all the bigwigs are there. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and they couldn't deny that the guy was standing right there next to him, healed, walking around. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well and healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become a cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a mouthful, isn't it? They go before all the bigwigs and they say, uh-uh, it's only through Jesus that we're saved. He was the Messiah. You killed him. You kill. It's only through him that we can be saved. And unless you confess his name, no one can come to him. No one can be with him in heaven. I mean, that's, that's almost worse than what Jesus said when he said, I'm the Messiah. I mean, they were just confessing that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. They were implicating them as murderers. And they didn't know what to do because the guy was standing there healed. Remember, they had this, this theology that said that, that nobody could do this kind of stuff without God's intervention, without God's help. Like, nobody could do this. That's why they were so confused with Jesus. And yet they knew it was in Jesus' name. And why would God listen if they did it in Jesus' name, if there was nothing to it? And so you had to know the Sanhedrin was divided. Again, think about it. This is all in the space of like 50 days, right? So how many days is that? Two months? Two months? At max three months? They watched Jesus die, and they were all having a party, right? They're all seeing their stuff. And then all of a sudden it gets really dark, earthquake. The curtain in the temple rips. They see people that were dead come back to life, Tell them that Jesus is the Messiah. Then they hear reports that Jesus has risen from the dead three days later, met with his disciples. Now he's shown himself to all sorts of people, his family, and who knows, 500 people, they say, saw Jesus upon his resurrection. You're hearing all these reports, and it's like they just keep pouring in. And then all of a sudden there's a lull, right? About 40 days or, or whatever of a lull, and and they don't hear anything, and maybe they think it's done, that it, it's just kind of dissipated. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, these fishermen, these, these no accounts in, in the society, doesn't mean they were dumb or anything like that. It just means that they hadn't gone through all the schooling, right? And so just kind of like you can't be president without going to Harvard or Europe, Yale or something like that. It, I mean, they didn't go all the way through to, to become a Pharisee or to become a politician or any of those things. So they were no accounts, and yet they were speaking authoritatively of the scriptures, speaking of his witnesses to Christ's resurrection. So in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the men who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferenced with one another, saying, What shall we do with these guys? For that, a notable, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard, but we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this, in a weird way, is very thematic today because we're going to talk just briefly about civil disobedience, right? Isn't that what happened here? The authorities of the land said, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And what did the disciples do? We're preaching in the name of Jesus, right? We're going to listen to God and not to you. I mean, you decide who we should listen to. And yet in Romans, we see that you should always follow the government, right? That they are the authorities that God has put in place, whether for your harm or for your good, right? For your blessing or for your cursing, depending on your faithfulness to God. So how do you reconcile all that? And the answer that Scripture gives is this. You obey the government unless it directly conflicts with Scripture. They tell you you can't worship God anymore. In that case, you defy the government and you still worship God. Why? Because you listen to God, not to man. Now, you do so fully knowing that you might receive the consequences of disobeying civil authority. But you do it in those cases because you are convicted that God is most important. When you look at the civil disobedience in our country today, what should be the Christian response? Not the response that you see all over the place. But if you had a a Christian concern, in this case for, for police brutality, what should be the right response in our country? A Christian response. Anybody? I mean, think about that. Is it violence? Does God say, oh, if somebody sins against you, you should sin back against them? I mean, is that what he says? Is it, is it putrid rhetoric? Is it hateful rhetoric? Is that what God says? Always respond in hatred to something that somebody does against you. No, it's none of those things. Martin Luther King, was he one of those agitators that did all sorts of violence? Oh, he's a pastor, wasn't he? And he kept calling on people to treat each other the way that God calls them to treat each other, to love your neighbor as yourself, irregardless of skin color. And he changed our country. Now, to be fair, he he was doing that in a country that still had God as somewhat of a center, right? People still, during the 60s and 50s, they were still going to church and mass. I mean, it was still a huge part of culture. It was one of the reference points that kept the government in check. It was one of the things that kept everybody in check, that love and that fear of God. And so he drew everybody back to God and says, this isn't the way God would want us to treat one another. And using that powerful testimony of God's love and caring for the golden rule and all those things, he little bit by little bit chipped away at the hardest of our country and started a revolution, a peaceful revolution based on truth and love and care for one another. Now, there was others during that time that probably didn't do it that way, right? Decided to stir things up like we see today. But that isn't, that isn't the way God would call us to do it. I heard a story in Phoenix. There was a, a pastor that wanted to go protest some of this stuff. And he got a bunch of his members. And they went and they peacefully protested. And then all of a sudden it got late and some agitators came in. Sort of took over the scene. And as they did, he, all his members left because they didn't want to be part of it. But that's not the way they set up to do it. They were trying to make a point, and these others were trying to do sin. And neither one has anything to do about God, does it? God calls us to follow the authorities in place, to recognize whoever the president is, right? Whoever the governor is, whoever the authorities are, 
that God has placed them there for our good and sometimes for our harm. Why would he ever do it for our harm as a consequence to our sin? Why would he ever do it for our blessing? Because he loves us and he cares for us. And so throughout history, as people sit walking away from God, he puts greater and greater fools in power. And as we walk toward God, we see that we're blessed abundantly more and more by our leaders and the people that care about our country. Right now we're on that track away from God, right? You know, who knows if the coronavirus changes any of that? I hope so. But, but the reality is we are to follow whoever the leader is unless it's something that goes against God, right? And, and, and so many of these people, it's, so much is politically motivated today. It's just crazy. But that's not what's happening in our country. That's not why we have a curfew at 8 o'clock tonight. It's not why all this dumb stuff is happening God calls us to be better than that. And when we do civilly disobey, understanding that there's consequence civilly to our decision not to do it and to be okay with that. That's the persecution of the Christians. The government, right, Rome said, don't preach this. The Jews said, don't preach this. And they said, we can't help but preach this. And we're willing to experience the consequence that comes from that. We're going to hide and we're going <laughs> to try to avoid it as much as possible, but we're not going to deny our Lord. And early church, especially the disciples, were martyred one by one. People in the Middle East today are being martyred one by one. They refused to give up their faith. They refused to give up their Lord. They continued to pursue him with all their hearts. And they are blessed for eternity as a result of their sacrifice. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I'll tell you this from... From Psalm 2, it's kind of saying that the Lord laughs when the world tries to set itself up against him because he's way more powerful, right? And, and yet it feels more and more like that in our world today because of the mass persecution against Christians. It's even infiltrating into America more and more in our politics and in some of the laws that are being passed. And so the reality is we're going to experience more persecution unless our country decides to do an about-face, Right? for simply holding to God's truth. You already experienced that today. There's some things that God says in here that are hard for our society because it calls some of the things that our society does sin, and they don't like that. Is it meaning it's not sin just because our society is okayed? I would love that kind of, can you imagine being kids and, and having a conversation amongst your brothers and sisters and then going to mom and dad and saying, hey, I know you have this big thing about the curfew, but we've decided that that's not okay between all of us. You know, we think it really should be this time. I know you're pretty serious about this, but, but we've talked about it, Mom and Dad, and we think, you know, between the four brothers and sisters here that we have a better idea. Does that change right and wrong? No. It's like the inmates are running the asylum. We just kind of make up stuff as we go, but God says, no, there's still truth. In a world that says there is no truth, God says there is truth. I've given it to you in my word. Trust me. For truly the, in the cities where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, they're killing of Jesus. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the threats of the Sanhedrin, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in all boldness 
while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Just in terms of numbers, I want you to think about this. When Jesus died, there's about 120 of them that were disciples that clung to Jesus all the way through. After he appeared, there's about 500, 120 to 500 of them, right, that had seen Jesus, had come to faith, his brothers and sisters included in that. And then after Peter's first sermon, there was like 3,000. After his second sermon, there was like 5,000. And then they were being persecuted. They were told not to share that message anymore. But in the Spirit, through that boldness, through their confidence in Christ, eventually that message made it throughout the whole world. It could not be contained. The message of forgiveness, of new starts, of fresh beginnings, of peace, of hope, of joy, it resonates in our world today. In fact, it's crazy that the very thing that our culture so desperately needs, and think about what the church offers, the message of truth, which means in the midst of a no-truth world that there's actual truth, peace, to let go of the past, peace to deal with the present, peace that comes from knowing God's promises, joy of knowing that he's got your future, a hope of knowing that he's got your future, a strength to deal with life as it comes, a fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Loneliness is one of the biggest epidemics in our culture today. People need other people that they know care about them. I was talking to a gal today. I said, it was fun being back in church. She goes, yeah, you know, I, I see people when I'm running on the trails and I can say hi to them. But it's so cool to be back in a place where I know people actually care about me. She doesn't have very many people that care about her, but this place does. And she has tons of friends here. And she was so excited to get back and just see people and know that they're still there for her and know that they still care and, and see them more than on, or, you know, on a telephone, right? You actually see them in person. There's something different about that. The church is made for community because we need one another because life is hard and we need each other praying for each other and we need each other encouraging one another so we can keep drawing on the strength of God. And that's my encouragement today. Keep drawing on the strength of God. Keep trusting his promises because in that, it reminds that he's got us, that he loves us, that we're his, that he's working. Even when we don't see it, all things for the good of those who love him. Continue to draw strength from this God. Continue to draw strength from Jesus because he is the answer truly to what you need in this life. Let me pray. God, we love you so much and we thank you for this text and, and, and Acts as we go through it and we're just so amazed at Peter's boldness and his willingness to face consequence, all to follow you. Father, we pray for that kind of peace and that kind of strength as we deal with life. A knowledge to know what's right and wrong, I think, sets us up, but just this peace that you've got us as we're walking through this world. As we look at the things that are happening tonight in our world with the coronavirus and everything else, we just pray that, that you protect us, that you would keep us safe, that you remind us that no matter what we face, even if we get sick, that, that you are a God that can heal and to strengthen and renew, that you are a God that's got us all the way even to heaven. Remind us of those truths, Lord, so that we can have the peace that you talk about in your word, so that we can have the hope and the joy that you talk about through your pages. Give us that reminder, Lord, that we are loved and forgiven by an amazing God. And we pray that tonight in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, guys,